Hello and welcome to Philosophize. Today we're talking about a very old film from 1936. It's even in black and white. It's called Things to Come. It's based on a screenplay by H.G. Wells. And if you've not seen it, it's in the public domain. So you might want to watch it before coming back to us and listening to what we've got to say. Hello, Dave. Hi there, Matt. How are you doing, mate? I'm doing really good. You have picked an amazing film this time. Oh, wow. Excellent. I'm glad you Yeah, I mean, I have to admit, and I said a bit of this on Twitter, some of the films that you've picked I've not immediately been enthusiastic about, which I think you knew, although they have, you know, they've all ended up being good. But this was um, a fantastic piece of history. I'm very interested by it and what you've got to say about it. But before we get onto that, do you want to just talk about why you picked things to come. One of the reasons I chose it, Matt, was for you, or rather for me to hear what you had to say about it. I thought the the mix of socialism and technology that, that's kind of woven throughout the film would um, really pique your interest. So I'm really glad that you liked it. Oh, I'm not happy with that now. Okay, all right, fair enough. I'm not happy that the reason you picked it was because you thought I'd like it. No, no, I, was, I liked I was, it. I, 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 <laughs> I don't know. I, I just don't like being predictable. I picked it not because I thought you'd like it. I was just interested about what you'd have to say on it. Mm, so okay. that's that's slightly different. That you liked it, it's an added bonus. Anyhow, another of the reasons I chose the film is one of the things I really want to do with this podcast is is go back and look at some origins. And this is, if you like, one of the origins of audiovisual sci-fi, of on-screen sci-fi. Big budget British film from the mid 30s during one of the golden ages of cinema. Um, and it's a lavish, lavish production, really taking itself seriously. And it really is one of the origins of, if you like, high class cinematic sci fi. It's interestingly when um, Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick were putting 2001 Space Oddity together in 68. Um, Arthur... Space Odyssey. Oh, I keep doing that, don't I? <laughs> it's, he's a, he's a David, big David Bowie fan, so that, that's what's happened there. Bowie will hit this podcast at some point as well, <laughs> i got to say. Uh, yeah, t- Space Oddity. Um, Space I'll, Odyssey. Did I do it again? <laughs> yeah, I'm leaving this in. Yeah, I'm just looking at my notes. I've actually written Oddity in my notes and not realised, and that's why I'm going to keep looking at it anyway. Um, <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke recommended that Kubrick see this film as an example of grounded science fiction as a kind of ethos for the way in which they would work on 2001. There was a contemporary review of 2001, I think. Um, This is just off Wikipedia. I can't remember who wrote it, where they complained that if you wanted to go back to find the previous film that was like this, it was just things to come. Ah. There hadn't been anything in decades that sort of met that tradition. Brilliant. So there you go. I mean, the the serious science fiction on screen is difficult to find, I guess. Um, and this is one of the, the keynotes of it. So that's one of the things I want to do. Go back to some of the origins. Um, and the other is it's 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 written by H.G. Wells in some of the promotion. And even on screen, it says H.G. Wells, things to come. And, you know, H.G. Wells is seen as the father of science fiction to a certain extent. Jules Verne was before him and, you know, from the 1830s, I think, early 1830s, I think he was born, lived until the early 20th century. But it's really H.G. Wells that really inaugurates and develops the science fiction genre. And, you know, 
So the Time Machine, 1895, Island of Dr. Moreau, the year after that, year after that, The Invisible Man, you know, year after that, War of the Worlds. And if we don't touch some of the film versions of some of those during this podcast run, we will be very, very amiss. So, you know, there's a lots of great reasons to talk to talk and think about this film, other than the film itself, which is absolutely awesome. I absolutely love it. I love the way it's produced. I love the way it's shot, didactic. It's a bit clunky, but you've got to remember, it's 1936. Sound films have only existed for five or six years. Mm. Yep. And yet it, it feels really natural. But there's still some of the hangovers of 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 some of the silent era you know big gestures and stuff like that certainly i mean i'm not an expert in silent film at all but it feels like a silent film soundtrack in that the the music in the montage sequences seems to really be telling a story yeah and sort of driving the narrative on I agree, absolutely. You know, so it's it's during a, an age transformation. You know, we we haven't got the big color productions yet. Mm-hmm. Color's going to come in in a few years' time. Nineteen thirty nine is Wizard of Oz, for instance. You know, where it reveals Technicolor after a black and white sequence. You know, it's that's the exceptional aim. So it's at that time, post sound introduction, pre color, that little window when cinema, a golden age of cinema, when people were trying to do everything with the cinematic medium and i think it really comes through in this film so look we'll return to some of those things a bit later but let's shall i just give a really brief overview of it so the film's set in three periods 1940 it's christmas but there's something brewing wars brewing beneath the surface and that indeed comes to fruition and there's a massive world war which um, captures up some of the main characters, but in particular, uh, the main focus, John Cabell. And then we get a, a kind of montage sequence between the first and the second part, which is very expressionist, barbed wire, shadows of tanks. Uh, up on the screen sh- flashes 1955, 1960, a, a big pandemic happens, uh, the wandering sickness. And then we hit 1970. And 1970, civilization, as one of the characters said, is dead. Everyone's living in rack and ruin. They're living amongst the detritus of a destroyed civilization. And into that returns John Cable, now an old man. And he's trumping this idea that there is a new dictatorship and they're called Wings Over the World, the World Communications. They're there to create order, to clean things up, to get rid of these tin pot despots and dictators that are ruling little pockets and get rid of these nation states. But he's captured by the boss of this area and eventually wings over the world come to free him um, and put down this, uh, this, this tin pot dictator with the gas of peace. Then there's another uh, montage sequence and it's a really, really lovely one. It's kind of like a dance of the machines. It's visual, symphonic music. The composition is beautiful. Um, the way in which it's put together is lovely. And there's a voiceover from Cabell saying, now we have to put the world in order. We have to settle, organize, advance this zone, then the next. Tear out the wealth of this world and exploit it. But that exploitation before was wasted on war and competition. Now we must make use of the treasures of sky, earth and sea in order to allow human beings to flourish. And that's when we hit the final sequence, which is 2036. Every town's been rebuilt. It's now Space Age City in the, in the countryside. It's lovely and clean. 
And here the conflict's quite interesting because we now meet the descendant of John Cabell, a guy called Oswald Cabell, who is trying to start moving out from the Earth and to investigate the moon in 2036. They've got a space gun. And against that, there is this sculptor, this artist with this kind of Greek name, Theocopulus, you know, perhaps a philosopher, so to speak, asking to halt this progress. And we get a bit of conflict there. But in the end, there is a moonshot. Um, Cabell's daughter, Catherine, um, goes into space and Cabell says, this is only the beginning. We must go on. Uh, first this planet, then the planets of our solar system and out into the stars. Thanks, Dave. So you said it was didactic. What did you mean by that? It's trying to teach you some things. It's trying to, you know, some of the, the dialogue can be seen as being very stilted. And I think that's some of the reasons for some of the poor reviews it got. I mean, George Louis Borges, the Argentinian writer, who was a lover of H.G. Wells's books, his early books, and we'll talk about his later books a bit later on, gave a bit of a poor review of the film. And it's because, you know, it's trying to tell you stuff. There's a lot of telling, not showing, as people would now put it. But do you know what? I think those arguments are bollock. <laughs> I'm just saying it's didactic. I'm not saying it's a reason to dislike it for that. It is what it is. And I think it's absolutely awesome in the way it performs. Too sure of progress. Oh, listen to the incurable pessimist. What's to stop progress nowadays? War. Firstly, there isn't going to be a war, and secondly, war doesn't stop progress. It stimulates progress. Yes, war can be a highly stimulating thing, but you can overdo a stimulant. Oh, well, after all, don't be exaggerating the horrors of war. Don't be rather overdo that song. After all, you know, the last war wasn't as bad as some people make out. Didn't worry. Something, something great seemed to have got hold of us. Something greater still may get hold of us next time. If we don't end war, war will end us. Well, what can you do? Yeah. What can we do? So one of the things I was reading um, about this, Dave, is Graham Greene's review Ooh, at the time. Right. Graham Greene, the author. Yeah, yeah. And Graham Greene didn't like it that much. But what's interesting is he likes the first part because of its portrayal of war, and he likes the second part until the main character turns up with his uh, technological revolution. And then after that, he dislikes it. He says that at least one third of this film is brilliant, is how he describes it. And the reason he gives, which is is not surprising from Graham Greene, who's um, uh, a, sort of a, well, a Catholic uh, writer, although sometimes critical of the church in his writings, he was given the title of Defender of the Faith. But he says that the um, sort of technological utopian stuff, which starts with the Wings of the World yeah. narrative in the apocalyptic stage, is naive, and that it's a product of the mind without religion trying to conjure up heaven. So it's a very um, religious critique of what's going on there. And I, I think that's an interesting place to start looking at the second part. So what I think is quite interesting, so it's prophetic in the sense it's predicted the war and the way it's depicted war on an industrial scale and sort of de depicted that in the montages. But it's interesting sort of comparing how this vision of what a dystopian future in the second part looks like to dystopian pictures that come after the war. Now, what I would say is the big thing well, there's two big things that aren't there but have different archetypes, and they are the um, 
a computer technology and the bomb. Mm. What takes their place is airplanes and gas and bio-warfare, which I think is interesting. So it's sort of like, you know, gas has got to have been the most murderous weapon. I mean, it's, it's a projection of what would a worse First World War look like when, you know, when it's not yet called the First World War. Yeah. And because, you know, I mean, the thing, the thing of the bomb is it, um, as Hannah Arendt puts it, they were the first generation to have the ability to destroy all human life. You know, it's just, it's, it's you know, destruction and death on a massive scale. You know, and so whereas um, a post-apocalyptic future in contemporary sci-fi would usually focus on something like nuclear holocaust, this is focusing on a war, a prolonged war of decades using gas and then eventually using um, a plague, uh, the wandering sickness, yeah. as it's called. And the other is just the, the way that air travel and airplanes are discussed. It's set up in the first part as a newspaper that you see, and it says, troubling statements by the Minister of Air. And I thought, that's a really odd thing, to really odd expression. I thought, Minister of Air. And uh, when we get to this dystopian thing, the sort of the local dictators desperate to get airplane travel and and, and Cabell has arrived and he's saying, you know, uh, wings of the world, you know, we've got air power. And the thing that allows them to you know, do things is both huge airplanes and then obviously gas. So I think I think it's interesting that you've got the pinnacle of technology is mastery of the air rather than sort of computer machinic technology, which only really enters popular imagination through the developments of the Second World War. And then gas, which becomes the gas of peace, sort of turning. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of equivalent to um, turning nuclear bombs into a power plant is the equivalent of turning the technology of gas into a sleeping gas that allows you to pacify without harm. So the specifics are different to how things are depicted now, but the structure's basically there. It's mm. that it's kind of the Star Trek idea that you know there's going to be a big world war and um, then finally technology will arise that will um, eliminate all need and bring peace, although it's a much more Marxist view than Star Trek because it's it had to be won over in a war rather than just spontaneously happening through a collective vision of humanity as it is in Star Trek. Yeah, paradigm shift rather than yeah. a natural evolution. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I find that really interesting. I also find, you know, the slogans that I use, this is something else that um, Graham Greene's not particularly happy with, is the slogans that uh, Cabal users, you know, I belong to World Communications. He spe uh, Greene specifically says he's irritated by that. Um, Wings of the world. You know, I mean, it, it's, it sort of feels a bit more um, Marshall McLuhan than Marx. In, <laughs> oh, very good. Okay, you're all right. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, um. Yeah, you know, the idea of um, the medium is the message, and the global village and yes. technology is what brings us together. The wife of the uh, the boss, the dictator, the chief in this sort of little uh, little dictatorship says, "We're completely isolated. I wish I could go out to places." And technology thing that makes the world smaller, well, it makes the world bigger because you can travel to it all. So it's smaller and big at the same time. I can't complain. I have everything that is to be had here, and yet this is a small, limited world we live in. You bring in the breath of something greater. When I saw you swooping down out of the air, when I saw you marching into the town hall, I felt this man lived in a greater world. And you spoke of the Mediterranean in the east, of your camps and factories. I read about the Mediterranean, and Egypt, and Greece, and India. Oh, I can read. A lot of those old books, 
I'm not like most of the younger people here. I learned a lot before education stopped and schools closed down. I want to see that world. Skies, snowy mountains, blue seas, sunshine, pines. If I had my way, you could fly to all that in a couple of hours. If you were free, and if I was free. So, the book is written in 1933, and it's called The Shape of Things to Come. And... He's really interested in what's been happening in the early 1930s, particularly the rise of Hitler. Mm. And he's very worried. And he, what he wants to do is project forward. Now, it's interesting to say that the book is actually a, not a novel in, in the formal sense of the word. It's, there's a framing device where um, he's, he, he begins writing. He's, he's, he's writing contemporary time in 1933. He say that what's contained within these pages is written by a dude called Dr. Philip Raven, who suddenly died in 1930. And he left all of these papers and he's been working on them since. And now he's publishing. And these papers are kind of like aphoristic and, and not completed. And they kind of describe what's going to happen. I'll read a, a little paragraph from the very okay. opening, opening of of this framing device. So here we go. All this time I've been holding back a manuscript, or rather a collection of papers and writings entrusted to me. It is a collection about which, I think, a considerable amount of hesitation was, and perhaps is still, justifiable. It is, or at least it professes to be, a short history of the world for about the next century and a half. This is exactly what the manuscript is. It is a short history of the future. So, so what he's saying is, you know, Dr. Raven was reading a book in his sleep and started making notes about it and died in 1930. Everyone thought the, the work was a bit weird, but everything that he wrote that happened between 1930 and 1933 has come to pass, including the rise of someone like Hitler. So he decides to publish this book. And it basically it covers the events from 1930 up to 2106. And we get economic problems, a war comes, and eventually... What happens is a benevolent dictatorship arises that has the aim of world peace. They dissolve nation states, they outlaw religion, they promote science, and they get rid of bad dictators in a peaceful way. We mentioned the peace gas earlier, yeah? Yeah. And the people are seen now as a collective. Individuality is allowed to exist, but it's no longer based upon economic. Devil take the hindmost principles but rather individuals are free to develop their own talents and live in, an, in a utopia. At the very end of this book, the writer, who is H.G. Wells, but it's not really H.G. Wells acting yeah. as H.G. Wells, the writer comes back in and, and writes this. At this point, Raven's copied out manuscript comes to an end. Seems to me a little abruptly, but it is the end. He has written the word finny here. I will add only one word or so by way of comment. I've called the manuscript a dream book. Was it a dream book? Or was it indeed, as he declared and believed it to be, a vision of the shape of things to come? Or there is a third possibility. As dreaming, this book is far too coherent. Incredulity creeps in. But was Raven too busily employed and too obsessed by this sense of urgency to embark upon a detailed analysis of world development? Was he trying nevertheless to sketch out in this fantastic form a general thesis, at least about the condition of things to come? If this is neither a dream book, nor a Sibylline history, then it is a theory of world revolution. Plainly, the thesis is that history must now continue to be a string of accidents with increasing the disastrous trend until a comprehensive faith in modernised world state, socialistic, 
cosmopolitan and creative takes hold of the human imagination. When the existing governments and ruling theories of life, the decaying religious and decaying political forms of today have sufficiently lost prestige through failure and catastrophe, then and then only will worldwide reconstruction be possible. And it must needs be the work, first of all, of an aggressive order of religiously devoted men and women who will try out and establish and impose a new pattern of living upon our race. So this is what uh, Wells turns to in the end. He turns this book as to being a theory, so to speak. And just to finish, it's worth saying that in 1940, a few years before his death, he lived till 1946, he, he wrote uh, a book called The Rights of Man. And this became the basis for the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So in his last years, he becomes a real advocate of mm. thinking about equality, getting rid of the idea of the nation state, nationalism, equality between men and women, between all of the different ethnicities in the world. And he becomes a big progenitor of that. Well, what do you want to see me about? Who are you? Do you know this country's at war? At war? Still at it, eh? We must clean that up. What do you mean, we must clean that up? All war. Who are you, I say? The law. Law and sanity. I am the law, yes. I said law and sanity. Where do you come from? Who are you? Wings over the world. Well, you know, you can't come into a country like this in this fashion. I'm here. Do you mind if I sit down? And now, for the fourth time, who are you? I tell you, wings over the world. That's nothing. What government are you under? Common sense. I belong to world communication. We just run ourselves. You run into trouble if you try and land here in wartime. So everything comes to a head. Everything we've talked about, H.G. Wells' socialism in the first part and the technology in the second part, discussions of technology, come to a head in the third section. As I said, we have the Luddites, uh, the sculptor Theocopolis, really thinking that this idea of unending progress is, is a real problem for human happiness. Whereas the other side, Oswald Cable, thinks that, first of all, adventure and and danger is needed. Uh, dragging out life is not living, as I said before. So so uh, what really interested me about this, this final sequence then was the fact that the utopia isn't just delivered, but it's also questioned. And it's questioned quite intensely mm. um, because Theocopolis goes on a big screen. Again, some of the effects in this sequence are just beyond this world. They're just absolutely yeah. lovely. What is this progress? What is the good of all this progress onward and onward? We demand a halt. We demand a rest. The object of life is happy living. We will not have human life sacrificed to experiment. Progress is not living. It should only be the preparation for living. What does this space gun portend? Make no mistake about it. The slaveries they put upon themselves today, they will impose tomorrow upon the whole world. Is man never to rest, never to be free? A time will come when you in your turn will be forced to wait to take your chance upon strange planets and in dreary, abominable places beyond the stars. An end to progress. Make an end to this progress now. Let this be the last day of the scientific age. Make the space come the symbol of all that drives us and destroy it. 
Now! So it's in this in this final section that this everything comes to head, and we get this real kind of um, interrogation that there is there is a problem with this utopia as seen from a certain perspective. And I, was, I, yeah. I suppose this is a bit. I was, I, I was interested. I said at the beginning of this uh, when we started talking, I was quite interested to find out what you had to say. And this is this is a bit where I'd like to hear what you've got to say about that. What happens in the third section, really? See, I think it's really interesting. I think that's where Graham Greene really misses the point it just has to be ironic there has to be some sort of this is raising a question it's not a straight face this is the utopia and then but then some people try and stop it and then they lose that can't be the message here when you know so when graham green says you know it's just too optimistic too naive and the thing that really stands out for me is actually the section with an old man talking to i think his granddaughter where he talks about how Oh yeah, it was awful in the olden days. People used to go outside and they used to have windows. And he talks about the age of windows. They didn't know about making artificial <laughs> light. That can't be straight-faced yay technology. You know, that that is um the film criticizing its own utopia there. You know, it's much smarter than I think um Green and contemporary critics were were sort of making out there. This isn't a naive technology is brilliant film. And I think Something else that comes out of that, with you know, so really at this point it becomes a, a you know a fight between progress and continual revolution of technology versus you know stability. You know we, we've got kind of comfort, and I actually think that that's really Marx is on the side of the sculptor. I I think a pregnant pause is needed at this point. I think Marx is on that side because. You know what's you know if we, if we look at sort of contemporary ways of analysing these things, we don't talk about the continual crises created by technology. We talk about the continual crises created by capitalism yeah. and its thirst for continual revolution, continual um, new inventions, and things like things like that. That's not coming out of technology. That's coming out of a very capitalistic mindset, a drive to continue. Whereas the goal of technology, for Marx, as I understand it, I'm not a Marxist, you know, in the academic sense is that you get to a point of technology where everyone's fine and then you stop. You just keep it going. And and then everyone can be literary critics in the evening and whatever the quote is. I think what's starting to happen in that film is that the ideology of technology is is taking over. And just think of the, the, the colonial and imperialist ways in which the younger Cavell is, is talking about, you know, the, we will continually go out and conquer and, yeah. and, and take over the world. We will never, ever, ever stop. Yeah. It's the film ejecting its premise. If there is a moral, it's not the one that's being disclosed by the characters. Now, another thing which I think just just beautifully shows that there are tensions in this film, deliberately so, and it's actually you reminded me when you were doing your recap of, of this line, but the basic presupposition of this history is that war does not create technological progress. And that is the thing that this film gets wrong. Um, in terms of its depiction of what's happening. But it does raise it as a question with that character right at the beginning, who Cabell's sort of arguing with in a debate. Yeah, passworthy, yes. yeah. But it does. You know, I mentioned before that this film doesn't have computer technologies. You know, there's a, there's actually a shot which I found really... Um, it, it was it was a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing about anachronisms where you put your own meaning into films, but it's like they're in the mission control center of the space gun, and there's like a, a glass pane which has like text written on it. I thought, oh yeah, that's like a computer display of what's going on. I was like, wait, hang on. Can't be. That can't be what's intended there. 
you know, the, the kind of had the idea of a computer display yet you know what what is that actually meant to be it might just be like a an equivalent of a poster you know and then and i look at it again and what's written on it sort of yeah no it's just describing what department they're in but computer technology was created because of the war and you mentioned the bomb earlier again that was developed yeah. out of the war as well yeah which creates nuclear batteries and and which allows us to explore planets and do all the things that is being advocated here and which of course which, of course, this moonshot here happens in 2036. Yeah, the that's very... exactly what I was, I was going for. Oh, there. Sorry, you know, the... sorry. No, 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 not sorry. No, I'll, I'll cut out you. Sorry. No, that, you know, we're agreeing with each other. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair call. Yeah. But yeah, no, that, that, you're exactly right, Dave, because the, the moonshot is so late, so unbelievably late. And why did the moonshot happen when it did? It happens because of rocket technology being developed in the Second World War yeah. and the aftermath of the Second World War generating competition between the two great superpowers that were left. Through a Cold War. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the that's naivety of it. And what I like about that sort of final sequence, or actually you know, all of the different ideological positions here that, that are in debate with each other, is that... You know, all of the positions are naive. To say that war creates progress and that's fine is incredibly naive. To say that technology only develops in peacetime is incredibly naive. To say that, oh, enough of this progress, why don't we just settle down and, and start farming, which is more or less what we're, we're getting from the sculptor. Yeah, these are all incredibly naive positions because ultimately technology, technological development is, it's not, you know, I don't buy the argument that it, it is not moral or immoral because it's just how you use it but its progress is somehow exceeds all of these different human intents the, you know the progress of technology is not entirely under our control you know and and it will grow in war it will grow in peace it will grow always until we stop doing it but we can't god is there never to be any age of happiness is there never to be any rest rest enough for the individual too much too soon and we call it death but for man no rest and no ending he must go on conquest beyond conquest first this little planet and its winds and waves and then all the laws of mind and matter that restrain him then the planets about him and at last out across immensity to the stars and when he has conquered all the deeps of space and all the mysteries of time Still, he will be beginning. So, um, Matt, is there any final things you want to say about this film in any way, shape, or form? Yeah, there was one. The one, one thing. So, you know, when I was sort of saying in the second phase, in the apocalyptic phase, where you know, whereas in a, a post war one we would have computers, they had airplanes, and post war one we'd have the nuclear bomb, and they had sort of gas, yeah. um, the gas and the bio warfare. The other one I thought was interesting was fossil fuels. So. Um, which I think replaces, well, we would replace that with food. You've got this feudal dictator and they, they do a raid on a coal mine or something like that. I can't remember what it, what it was. It's just interesting that even though they've collapsed down to feudalism, it's post-industrial feudalism. And they're still fighting over resources in that very explicit way. Whereas in a sort of a contemporary post-apocalyptic scenario the one that i can think of that most fits is um the video game series fallout uh, which dave won't have heard of i won't it would it would be a fight for food and farming land because in a post-apocalyptic scenario that we usually can consider 
all technology is gone. So we go back to agriculture. Yeah, and agriculture becomes difficult because of fallout. Right, okay. How about you? Yeah, I suppose um, the, the final thing I've got to say is it's not... Not anything about um, the content of the film itself, but um, just something on, on a little bit of its history. Uh, originally, it came in at two hours and ten minutes, the rough cut of the film. And when it was released, it was around about one hour, 50 minutes long. But the version we've got is an hour and a half long, which it was edited down to that during its run of 1936. And that's the print we've got. And, and I don't know. I haven't been able to find out anything about if the other longer versions exist and, and what the content of them was particularly. So that's something I, I, I feel I want to look into a bit further. And just a warning to anybody who might go out and try and watch this film who hasn't seen it already. There's also a colorized version. Please don't watch that. Watch it, in the <laughs> watch it in the original black and white. You know, yeah. I just is, there's no need. There's no need for that. You know, it is actually um, freely available, and um, we're going to be providing a link to archive.org. I've got the um, I've got the film available to download for free. Cool. I'll put a link on towards um, H.G. Wells' uh, novel, which is on Project Gutenberg for free as well. Great film choice, Dave. Thank you, mate. I, I, I am so pleased you enjoyed it. I really am. I, um, I remember it from when I was a kid and I went yeah. back to it, you know, when we were thinking about what stuff we were going to put on and I saw it again. The bit I remember was was um, the gas of peace um, and him <laughs> in his uniform coming out and talking. I can, I can remember that vividly for, uh, from a child, you know, watching it in the 70s. And rewatching it again was an absolute joy. And watching it now as a as a as a fully grown adult, I, it just blew me away with its production values. I mean, it, it's brilliant, isn't it? It's you know you're in a post apocalyptic feudal society, and suddenly Mark Zuckerberg turns up and offers you world communications, and there's your utopia. 